0: Hello and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Rdjan. Today I'm joined by Cynthia Becker. Associate Professor in the Department of History of Art and Architecture at Boston University. We will be talking about her book, Blackness in Morocco, Gnawa Identity Through Music and Visual Culture, published in 2020 by the University of Minnesota Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Becker, for joining us today. Thank you for your interest in my book and asking me to participate in your series. It's a really big honor. Of course, it's our pleasure. Um, So at the New Books Network, we like to begin by getting to know our authors. So can you tell us about your background as an art historian and how you conceived of this book? So I am an art historian specializing in African art,
1: which in my field typically refers to Africa south of the Sahara. Mm. And I became interested in North Africa after I worked as a graduate student on several archaeological excavations in Tunisia, at Carthage, and also in Morocco. And this allowed me, through experience, to learn more about the arts and culture of North Africa. And this was something I hadn't really studied very much previously. You know, I studied African art history with a scholar specializing in Nigeria and Yoruba art, And North Africa is typically not covered in the curriculum. So more specifically, I excavated in 1994 at the site of Sijil Masa, which um, it was with an American and a Moroccan team. And Sijil Masa was a stopping point for trans-Saharan caravans during the medieval period. And one of the commodities was enslaved people. And um, I decided to do a dissertation project, not really on archaeology, but focusing on art of the region of southeastern Morocco where Sijil was located. And this became my very first book, Amazir Arts in Morocco, Women Shaping Berber Identity. So to do the work for this book, I lived in southeastern Morocco between 95 and 97 as a graduate student. And during this time, I attended a ceremony that involved healing and possession in a town out in the desert, out you know outside of where Sijamasa was located, is located in the Tefillalet oasis. It's in the desert in a town called Hamiya. And Hamiya was a pretty small town inhabited primarily by the descendants of enslaved people. And um, these were people who had aligned themselves with the local Amazir group. the Khabash is the name of this group. And I was really shocked when I got there to hear that people referred to themselves as Ism Khan. So Ism Khan in Tamazert, which is the Amazer language spoken in that area, means slaves. And so as an American, and um, you know, I grew up in New Orleans in the South, I was very sensitive to these racialized categories. And I questioned why people would adopt as their self-descriptor a word that seems to be demeaning and pejorative. And as I tried to make sense of this, people explained to me that identifying as slaves isimhan was not meant to be a pejorative uh, term because the term signified a link to blackness in sub-Saharan Africa, which people called the Sudan Mm -hmm. in North Africa. So when they say the Sudan, they don't mean the contemporary country of the Sudan. It's really more a general term to refer to West Africa. And so one person suggested in, South, in the southeast that if I really wanted to learn more about blackness and the history of the trans-Saharan trade, I should really go to the city of Essaouira, which is located on the Atlantic coast on the other side of Morocco, and I should look for a man named Mahmoud Guineas. And so I drove, I had a car, you know, it was pretty rickety. I was a grad <laughs> student. I drove across the mountains and I made it to Essaouira. And at that point, 1997, it was kind of a quiet town. And I asked around, where's Mahmoud Guinea's house? People were like, okay, over there. Knocked on the door. He was home and I was with a couple people. He agreed to play music for us that night. And I really saw a different Morocco than I had experienced living in the Southeast and I thought this would be a great topic for a future project. And um, you know, as an Africanist art historian, then working in Morocco, the topic of Gnawa visual culture and performance, really allowed me to address um, issues of um, African and you know, Middle Eastern studies, kind of bringing the two together, which previously are kind of divided. And so I was able to look at the geographic and the conceptual link between North and Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, the division of the continent into an Arab North and a Black South, and then also work on integrating Morocco into the field of African studies, um, which previously it had not been. It had previously been associated with the Middle East and North Africa or the Mediterranean world. so that's what really brought me to the topic and got me interested in it in the beginning.
0: Wow, this is fascinating. And um, I certainly am very glad that you took up this topic later on and wrote this book. Um, And, you know, you told us a little bit about the Gnawa identity and how you came to it. Um, But my next question is on performance. Uh, So you understand Gnawa identity through practices of performance and connections to Blackness. And I was wondering, what is at stake in this emphasis on performance? And what does performance tell us about Blackness within and beyond the context of Morocco? So the book
1: certainly looks at how an understanding of Blackness is connected to a Gnawa identity And how this understanding is dependent on the performance of certain racialized signifiers. And I really tried to face this head on, how racialized categories can be a source of agency and self-respect. But at the same time, blackness in a Moroccan context is also associated with marginality and otherness since it's linked to the history of the trans-Saharan slave trade. So the performance of blackness can reinforce certain negative stereotypes, as well as be a source of empowerment for people. So it's tricky, it's very complex. So one can ask on a larger scale whether Gnawa performances challenge dominant readings of the black body um, or uh, reinforce them. And so there's a paradox the performance of blackness really means that one's agency is linked to the history of oppression. It's linked to the history of slavery, but it's also this very association of blackness with alterity and otherness that can now what performers um, do that really appeal to people all across Morocco. So giving the category of blackness a very wide appeal. Um, And so for some people, especially in the last several decades, the act of performing and kind of appropriating a Ganawa identity, even though you may not have a history of slavery within your family, you have no ancestral connection to West Africa. People are really using Blackness as a means of uh, social protest in a lot of ways. Um, It's kind of an alternative, a marginal identity. And it's a way to associate yourself with the African continent, as opposed to being part of the larger Arab world or as opposed to being Middle Eastern. Mm. And so, um, people like it as this, um, alternative identity. And, you know, this is a really big debate that goes beyond Morocco, um, as an art historian, especially, you know, um, I think about the work of the artist, Kara Walker, Mm -hmm. um, and her work, she creates these life-size black silhouettes and she places them on white backgrounds And her silhouettes are often scenes of racialized violence against black bodies. And there's really a great deal of debate among people as to whether Kara Walker is reinforcing marginalization of black people. Or, you know, is she forcing us, the viewer, to reflect on the nature of such images in mainstream culture and what they mean about the history of racialized violence in the United States? And, you know, both things are happening in Kara Walker's work. And it's those kinds of things that sort of inspired me. Both things are happening um, in Ganawa identity and Ganawa performances.
0: This is fascinating. And I love hearing about how, you know, you think this together with the circulations of images, um, which is also very apparent in your book. So in the book, you have a chapter on postcards and photography, And through the circulations of this media, we see how on the one hand, the Gnawa identity becomes a racialized and marketable one uh, through the European gaze. And on the other, uh, how the Gnawa themselves use these representations to their advantage. So how do images and their travels contribute to our understanding of these dialogical constructions of blackness and what does this visual lens tell us that other media might not be able to?
1: So um, I personally, as an art historian, um, specializing in African art, have been looking at postcards for a long time. Mm-hmm. And really it's been since the 80s that people in our field have been looking at historical postcards. And they've become a pretty serious subject of study in the field of African art history. Mm-hmm. So um you know, they're pretty fascinating as objects that circulate and as global um, objects. So it was really in the late 19th and early 20th century that European and some American photographers traveled to Africa. They took photographs that were then sent back to Europe and then they were printed into postcards. And there's no copyright back then. So people were just producing things left and right and <laughs> negatives were circulating. and um, and, you know, when these images were printed, they were often joined with captions. And the captions were written by people in Europe who knew nothing about Africa, had never traveled to the place where the images were taken. And so many of the captions are incorrect. Some some of them are hand-colored, and the hand-coloring, you know, is just made up by people within Europe who are producing the postcards. And all we know be- is that um, the postcards were then sent back to Africa and then sold in shops to tourists and then also to colonial soldiers um, who wanted to send a souvenir home to their family. And um, because there was no copyright, what happened is when people saw an image was particularly marketable, they would repeat it over and over and over again. And so they really, through the study of postcards, we get a sense of the stereotypes. That were um, recognized by people at the time, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And um, they really tell us a lot about the unequal power relations that existed between Europe and Africa. And in the case of North Africa, you know, there have been a lot of studies on postcards, most of them concentrating on women and the bodies of women, um, showing women as um, you know, the stereotype is the nude woman kind mm-hmm. of posing in, a, in an Odalisque position, sort of lying on the ground in an evocative position, showing women as being oppressed and living in harems controlled by men. And this was a European stereotype mm-hmm. about North African women. So this would sell. And one of the things that I started to do is I started to you know look in archives, what are the images that I can find of Morocco? because I started to see that there were a couple showing black men, dark-skinned men, holding instruments that I would associate with contemporary Ganawa musicians, metal cymbals. They were wearing cowrie adorned hats, which are typical of Ganawa musicians today. They were holding the ginbri, which is a type of a plucked lute that is played by Ganawa musicians today. And I started to ask, well, wh- what are these? Who is producing them? What can they tell us? those kinds of things. And so there really are no archives where you can find a lot of these. So I created my own archive. (laughs) I went online and I purchased them from eBay. There's a lot of sites in France that, especially because Morocco was once a French colony, where you can purchase many of these cards. And I have a collection of about 300 um, postcards. And one of the things that I found um, is um, that men with dark skin were always shown kind of in a very similar way, either as a soldier for the Sultan as part of his army or as a musician. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that these types of images, um, you know, when you pose for them, they sort of impact your own self-representation. And I say that they contributed to the formation of Ganawa as a racialized identity associated with Blackness and the public performance of music At the turn of the 20th century, so late 19th, early 20th century. So, I think this is really when a Ganawa identity became codified. So, I use the postcards kind of in a way to sort of tell me about the process of Ganawa identity formation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is not to say that Ganawa music didn't exist before that that people were not engaging in spirit possession before that date. They definitely were because they were bringing these ideas with them from Africa, south of the Sahara, Mm -hmm. um, and then replicating them in a North African context. But I think it's kind of this interaction that happened between Black musicians and European photographers, tourists, visitors, that sort of fixated Ganawa as a identity that could be publicly performed in the public space that was associated with maleness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, um, of course women are always associated with Kanawa performance, but we don't see them on these postcards. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I argue in the book is that I believe that it was during this, this period, the late 19th, early 20th century, when Morocco was becoming destabilized due to increased colonial interest within the kingdom that the wealthy Moroccans, who were the primary slave owners, they they had to manumit a lot of their slaves. And there are historical records that indicate that this was happening. Um, they couldn't afford to keep them anymore. And so many people left for urban areas of Morocco. And so even today, Ganawa is really an urban phenomenon, more than it occurs in rural areas. So the cities of Fez, Marrakech, Asawara, Casablanca, Tangier, I believe that enslaved people, when they were manumitted, they went to these urban centers looking for new lives, formed communities, started to perform music on the street as a way of kind of existing and living because they don't have land to farm. They don't have large family networks. Um, and so they created their own families and their own communities in these urban settings. So um, that's one of the things that postcards, when I looked at them a lot, they sort of engaged the, you know, I started thinking about these
0: ideas uh, more and more. Um. And, you know, while I really enjoyed um, your analysis through what can be seen on postcards. I also was struck by your careful attention to things that were not seen, which you mentioned a little bit. Um, for example, you were in the book, you're really attuned to how Gnawa women disrupt filmmakers voyeuristic gaze. So what can be gleaned about gender, Black representation, and agency by staying attuned to what is not captured on camera?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I argue in the book is that um, the deliberate performance of Blackness, which, can, which is captured visually through postcards, through film, through ceremonies that are performed in public, um, this can really draw attention to the constructed nature of racialized categories. So in other words, if we use the postcard as an example again, when there's a postcard that's printed, it removes the image. So if you just have a person printed on a postcard, often the background is just white. And so the person is really removed from the wider world in which he or she existed. And so for example, if we see a man performing with metal symbols, and wearing a cowrie shell hat with a white background behind him, We know nothing about the larger world in which he existed. And so this left out of account really leads to the viewer's desire to fill in the blanks, which often devolves into stereotypes and social caricatures. So studies of visual culture really recognize and emphasize the constructed nature of stereotypes. And by looking at these types of images, we hope to expose them, allowing us to view a person in a postcard, for example, not really as a victim, but really as a person who's in the process of negotiating his or her own self-representation through your choice of particular props, particular poses. And so, you know, one of the things I argue in the book a great deal is that a Ganawa identity has long been a consumable identity marketed to outsiders. I mean, ganawha is so marketed in Morocco today, but I think it's something that's been going on for a long time. And I don't view it as something necessarily negative that has been imposed upon them, but I view it as something that could be self empowering, allowing people to engage in acts of agency. Um, so I think often if you sort of look at what's not seen and think about what's missing from the image, it can tell you a lot about the image, but you have to be asking those types of questions and attuned to those types of things, because what is not seen is just as powerful as what is seen.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is, you know, this is really a wonderful quotable statement. Um, (laughs) um, So thanks for drawing our attention to what is not seen Um, in the book you also vividly depict Gnawa ceremonial practices and how the Gnawa negotiate their relationship to Islam, post-slavery Morocco, and Sudan uh, using these practices, which, you know, I think follows really well to your emphasis on, you know, representation and identity as being negotiable. Um, so can you tell us about how these connections are forged through ceremonial practices and how does ceremonial performance contribute to Gnawa articulations of blackness?
1: So, um, I think maybe it's best if I kind of describe a Gnawa ceremony, Mm -hmm, Sure, what it's like. So a Gnawa ceremony is called a lila, which means night in Arabic. And so, um, So Ganawa I talked a lot about postcards, often perform in public. Mm -hmm. And when they perform in public, people kind of give them donations sometimes because one of the things that you get is something called barakah Mm -hmm. or blessings from God. If you give money to Ganawa, because Ganawa having a connection to blackness is also having a connection to Bilal. So Bilal was the first muazin, the first man to perform the Muslim call to prayer um, in the history of Islam. And he was um, a man from Eastern Africa who was enslaved and then liberated from enslavement, manumitted from enslavement um, by the prophet Muhammad and became one of the prophet Muhammad's first followers. And so Ganawa declare that they are descendants of Bilal. And so because of this, they have healing abilities. Also, we know that many Ganawa practices are coming from Africa, south of the Sahara, where you have possession by spirits being used as healing. Um, And this occurs in so many places in Sahelian Africa. Hal Sabori is one example of that. Um, Tsar in the Sudan is another example. So people are possessed by various spirits. And when you are possessed, you're pleasing the spirit. And that causes um, an illness that could be induced by a spirit being angry at you. Um, to be healed, right? Mm-hmm. And you're sort of at one with the spirit. And so Ganawa ceremony then developed with the kind of these things in mind um, and also being connected to Islam because, of course, Morocco is a majority Muslim country, right? So um, the Ganawa ceremonies then are held at night um, and these are private ceremonies. And so this is very different from the public performances that are captured by the postcards. Um, and so, um, you have to be invited to a Lila and they're typically held by a person who is suffering from an illness, who has visited a diviner and the diviner will, it's usually a woman who will tell you, you know, you have this spirit causing these problems and you need to hold the Lila in order to appease the spirit. And so when you hold the Lila, you you if you're holding it you're the person who's ill you hire the who will hire musicians you'll buy animal you know to sacrifice so you have food to feed people who've attending the ceremony it's it's kind of expensive to do and um you invite people to come over to your house and the ceremony usually starts around nine or ten o'clock at night And then it goes all night into the morning and it can go for 12 hours, eight hours, 24 hours. I've been to ceremonies that are three days. People go home and sleep in between and then come back. And so when a Lila happens, the idea is that you play the music. You have the male musicians who perform the music for the spirits in a very particular order. And the order, um, it does vary a little bit in Morocco, according to which region this particular Gnawa group is located in. But when the um, lila begins, the first group of spirits to be evoked are the Selahin or the saints. And these are a group of spirits who include many historical figures associated with Islam. And when these pir- spirits appear people may feel touched by these spirits like somehow have a relationship to these spirits and they get up and they dance and they wear all white they'll take a piece of white cloth and they put it over their heads and they may rock back and forth similar to sufi ceremonies within morocco where people kind of rock back and forth and they chant the allah allah you know or the shahada the, the muslim profession of faith over and over and over again and idea is that this will bring healing to you. Then the musicians take a break and then they come back and they perform for the black spirits. And the black spirits that follow then are said to originate in West Africa. And um, one black spirit, his name is Sidi Mimun. He's very powerful. And when he arrives, he's said to come, you know, be Sudani, meaning from the Sudan. And when he arrives, people will say, the uh, Ganawi hahua, in Sudan. You know, so it's the Genawa, here he comes from Sudan. So Sidi Mimun is kind of like coming, boom, you know, across the Sahara, coming, coming. And the song is very powerful. And um, you get the sense that he's kind of fierce. And when people are possessed by Sidi Mimun, they will get up and they dance in front of the musicians. They wear black and they hold lit candles, And they'll dance with the candles and hold them up to their skin. But the flames of the candles, you know, are touching their skin but are not hurting them. So Me Moon is protecting them from um, being hurt by the flames. And there are many more spirits of different colors. So, um, you know, it's all in chapter four, (laughs) chapter four of the book. And so um, I discuss pretty extensively in that chapter how, People in Morocco view Ganawa ceremonies and how some people would be critical of them. Some people, some Muslims, would be critical of them since they say that they're evoking spirits into possession, which is not something that is acceptable within Islam. But it's much more complex as, like, everything in life, right? (laughs) Um, People who go to Ganawa ceremonies and are very active. Um, They don't see a contradiction. They don't see what they're doing as against Islam. They will perform their daily prayers. They, many of them will take the pilgrimage to Mecca. You know, they, they fast during Ramadan. When there is the call to prayer that happens, the Ganawa ceremony stops and everyone is quiet. And then you listen to the, you know, the call to prayer. That happens. And so people don't see themselves as existing in conflict with Islam or Ganawa pra- practices as existing in conflict with Islam at all. And so, um, you know, but one of the things I argue in the book is that, um, you know, the evocation of these Sudani spirits or the black spirits, the really powerful spirits like Sidi moon that often involved dancing with fire, and some of them even involved eating raw meat and things like that, dancing with knives. I say that this was historically, I view it as a means for a, um, you know, marginalized people of enslaved or formerly enslaved people to, they sort of reproduce what people in Morocco might view as um, something exotic. Mm -hmm. And so um, an exotic trope. So in a way they're kind of self-exoticizing. And I think that this contributes to, their otherness, but at the same time, it's a means of negotiating a very complex social structure that attempts to control them by really appropriating, so people are appropriating a stereotype as a means of self-empowerment because the blackness, the connection to the Sudan, the connection to Africa, South of the Sahara is the source of one's power. And the closer you are with these black spirits in the Sudan, really the more spiritual potency you have. And so today in Morocco, um, this has become more and more important to people. And this is something that I discuss a lot in the book, especially at the last few chapters, um, because again, identity is diffusing into the larger public and even, you know, to outsiders like me and other people, um, people were really emphasizing that the true Ganawa, the true, the most powerful Ganawa are the ones who are black, Mm. the ones who have a connection to the Sudan. You know, people will tell me we're the real thing. We're the real Mm Ganawa. You know, the other ones are not. Mm -hmm. So blackness has become even more potent and more performed than ever before.
0: Wow. This is really fascinating. Um, And you do a marvelous job as sh- showing how you know, self-exoticization is mm. very complex and it is a means of negotiation. And I'm also curious about contemporary forms of self-branding and self-commodification that Gnawa themselves embrace. Can you tell us about how you observed this process during your time in Essaouira? And what are the possibilities and limits of self-branding and self-commodification?
1: Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a great question. And um, I discuss it a lot in Chapter 5 of the book. And I consider um, really the current marketing of Gnawa identity, which was everywhere in Essaouira, probably more so than any other city within Morocco, because this is the site of the extremely popular Gnawa Festival of World Music. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, uh, you know, this festival is so popular. There can be 40, 50,000 people who come there and it's held every summer. It was canceled less this summer. It's going to come back next summer <laughs> and I'm sure it'll be more popular than ever before. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of foreigners, but a lot of Moroccans will come. So it's extremely popular with just Moroccans themselves, mostly. And um, you know this increased popularity of Gnawa music in the last few decades really has caused a great deal of tension between those who were, what I say, born into hereditary Gnawa families and those who recently began to play music. So within Morocco, you have people whose father were, were Gnawa musicians, or their mothers were diviners or something. and they perform ceremonies and healing, and they've learned the spirit possession repertoire which is you know, very long and detailed from their families. But there are other people who just kind of pick it up because they have friends, they're interested. Maybe they have a neighbor, maybe they want to travel the world and they see performing Kanawa music as a means that they can travel and see things and have a living for themselves and things like that. So um, there's a tension there between these people that's becoming more and more pronounced. And, um, so in Chapter 5, I really do kind of two case st- studies. And um, one of them is about the shrine um, called Zawiya Sidna Bilal, which is an Essaouira. So um, Zawiya is a shrine. And it's really the only shrine dedicated to Bilal, who I mentioned was the muezzin of the Prophet mm-hmm. Muhammad. And um, there were lots of debates when I was living in Essaouira, And I, I went for many, many years and lived there at one point for a year. And um, I often heard these debates and people would tell me about them. I think because I was coming from outside, people would often just tell me what they wanted me to hear and their side of the story. So it became really interesting um, as a means of understanding how people are negotiating the commodification of Ganawa identity. And so really until about 2013, there was the shrine, the Zawiya was controlled by a family who was not a hereditary Gnawa family. And people who were hereditary Gnawa musicians were angry about that. So there was a lot of intrigue and a lot of kind of, um, you know, debate over who should control it. And um, in the end, um, well, the, the group controlling it until 2013 had formed an association. They were having Sufi ceremonies there. They were kind of viewing it as... Kind of a public community space. They wanted to build a museum, which they didn't finish. They had planned to put a music school there, and you know, hereditary Ganawa musicians would say, "You can't go to school to <laughs> learn Ganawa music. This is something that you're born with." None of our family went to school mm-hmm. to learn this, you know. So in the end, um, it was the hereditary Ganawa musicians who did take control of the shrine, and so I kind of outlined that um, in this chapter, and. Before 2013, before they had control of it, it was a really popular venue that would be packed, filled with people, you know, who would attend. They would have an annual lila that would kind of be the last lila of the year before Ramadan, because during the month of Ramadan, people say the spirits sleep. And so if you're going to have a Ganawa lila, it happens often during this month of Shaban, which is the month before the month when Ramadan happens. Um, in Morocco. I mean, all over the Muslim world. And so um, it used to be really crowded, really large events. There would be TV cameras, you know, coming in, interviewing people, filming, there would be government officials. And then when you have the hereditary musicians, it became much more low-key and much more like we're having it community-based. This is our family. This is sacred, what we're doing. So it became much more of a sacred space Again, mm-hmm. I would say it probably started off that way. Mm-hmm. And then now, due to debates between people over who had the right to control Ganawaness, it's returned to being a more sacred space again today. So, um, yeah, I kind of tell that story, which um, was really interesting to me. Um, and I think the last Lila that I attended there, um, I had, you know, it was very different, it was very quiet. No cameras allowed, people had to really pay attention, you know, and um, a much more different feel than when it was controlled by other people.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's incredible. And you know, Blackness in Morocco read to me as a very ethnographic book. But during our conversation, I've become even more convinced that, <laughs> you know, this is a very ethnographic piece of work, like the way you um, respond to the questions, even the way you describe how you came uh, to write this book um, is very much grounded in, um, in these experiences. Um, so... I was wondering if you could tell us how you employed ethnographic methods and how you put them in conversation with art history.
1: Yes, I know. I guess I'm a wannabe anthropologist or ethnographer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyone can be.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I have a master's degree, actually, in anthropology and a bachelor's (laughs) degree in anthropology. Yeah. And I switched to art history. So, you know, I went to school at the University of New Orleans, um, and my undergraduate, and studied anthropology, and uh, went away to graduate school at University of Wisconsin-Madison and studied anthropology, and then took a class with my graduate advisor. Mm-hmm. His name is Henry Drewell, and I loved his class so much and his sort of methods, which is very ethnographic. And um, African art history is a discipline that grew out of ethnography and anthropology. And so um, it's kind of from that, um, that we have developed into a field. It's a relatively new field of study within the field of art history. I'm probably the third generation of Africanist art historians um, to be in academia. And so really the first generation was kind of came out of the Peace Corps And so these were people who had lived in Africa for a very long time. And so it's brand new. And so many universities don't even offer African art history as part of the curriculum. So, um, you know, so that's how I was trained. And um, I don't know if I can do it any other way. And I'm so interested in people. So when I meet people and I hear their stories, I just become really fascinated. I love to talk to people and, and learn about them and sort of how do you see the world and and so I truly really tried to bring the two together, uh, you know, as, and I feel that, um, you know, one of the ways is by looking at the postcards and looking at film and looking at how ethnographic films like Viviana Puck's film represents women um, historically and those types of things and sort of problems of representation, visual representation. And so I think, all of those things yes they definitely have influenced my um methodology and um and you know I don't necessarily go into a project I think with a really clear cut like I'm going to do this I'm going to do that it sort of evolves when you're there and when you meet people and you see you know in Morocco is a, such a really wonderful place to be um that you know, you meet one person who introduces you to another person who, and then the next thing, you know, it's a whole, you know, really fascinating thing to learn about. Um, So um, people are very generous um, in Morocco and the hospitality is amazing. And I could not have done it without the, you know, amazing hospitality of people inviting me to ceremonies and things. So
0: that's fascinating. Um, And I'm glad that this book came out of this multidisciplinary approach. Uh, And in the book, you also tell us that you take sounds, odors, tastes as units of analysis. Could you speak to the sensorial approach? How did it enrich your understanding of Gnawa identity?
1: So, I mean, one of the things that um, if you go to Alila in Morocco, one of the things that you will notice is the smell of incense, Jawi, is really strong, right? And um, every time I smell it today, I think of being in alila. And sometimes I even kind of crave the smell of jowie of incense, um, because I've become so used to it and I love it so much. And it just evokes so many really wonderful memories. So, I mean, people have, scholars have discussed how um, the sense of smell and the sense of taste are so memorial to people. You know, mnemonic devices that remind them of place. And I think certain smells are equated in a Ganawalila with Sub-Saharan Africa. So um, certain smells are, you know, said to bring you into, you know, into the Sudan. And um, there are certain foods that are created for um, the spirits. And at the very end of Alila, there is a certain food that is dispersed, that is um, cooked Um, especially for the spirits. And I was actually never allowed to eat it by people because they said, well, you know, you're coming in from outside. What if you couldn't make it one year, you know, from the U S and then you might get sick because the spirits are going to crave this food. Mm. And so they advised me against eating it, which I did. I didn't, I didn't eat it, I thought it was good advice. It's true. You know, (laughs) Especially with COVID, you know, I didn't go back
0: yeah. for a while.
1: So, um, you know, there, so it's definitely sounds, odors, taste, as you say, foods that take you to a certain place, and I think remind us even of Sudaniness and blackness um, in a Ganawa context um, that are just as important as seeing, um, you know, the visual. Because all of those things are activated during a ceremony. You have the clanking sound of the iron cymbal. You have the plucking of the gimbri along with sort of frapping the, the, the skin of the gimbri like a frame drum, mm-hmm. you know, and all of those things with the smell of the incense. I mean, you can't get a spirit to possess you unless you have all of those things going. And then once the spirits arrive, they do require people to eat certain foods. Mm-hmm that the spirits prefer. And so if you don't have all of those things working in conjunction, you don't have a successful spirit possession, and you don't have a successful healing, um, that takes place. So you really need all of those things to work together. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to make that come out as much as I could within the
0: book. Mm -hmm. I think you did a fabulous job with it. And I'm sure um, your book will be of interest to uh, our listeners who might be working on sensory ethnographies. Um, Thank you. <laughs> before we end, I want to ask you what is next for you? What are some new projects, pieces of writing, or even classes you're working on right now? So, thanks for asking.
1: <laughs> um, you know, because, because of COVID, I didn't, I, I thought that I wouldn't be able to go back to Morocco for a while. Um, hopefully, I can go sooner rather than later. But um, I started a project in my hometown oh, wow. because of it. So I'm, I'm originally from New Orleans. I do live in Boston. I teach at Boston University. But um, I'm from New Orleans. And so I started a project um, that I had worked on previously looking at the Confederate monuments. And so this project is called, at this point, Beyond Marble and Bronze, Commemorating Women's Lives in Post-Reconstruction New Orleans. And so um, I'm looking at how economically and socially marginalized women in New Orleans created monuments or memorials to express their experiences and to confront unequal power dynamics conveyed by the monuments dedicated to the Confederacy. So I kind of became interested in this because, you know, there was a lot of discussion about the Confederate monuments coming down in New Orleans and New Orleans is one of the cities that took down several of them Mm -hmm. many years ago. That was very controversial. And so, um, You know, I found that everyone's talking about these monuments, but what are the sort of forms of visual culture, the the forms of performing arts that have been created by people to confront the monuments, you know, over the last hundred years? You know, people are not just looking at these monuments and not reacting to them and not doing anything in response to them. And so I'm looking at things like Black Indian performances, as a response to Jim Crow laws and things like that in New Orleans, Um, Marie Laveau and altars dedicated to her and practices associated with her. She was a Creole woman who was associated with the practice of voodoo and healing. So um, things like that. And so I hope I have a sabbatical in the spring Mm -hmm. and I hope to write a book (laughs) on this topic um, during my sabbatical so during the spring of 2022 and you can see that some of the issues sort of overlap with the project on ganawa identity in morocco and then hopefully after that i'm back in morocco (laughs) doing something new
0: (laughs) hopefully (laughs) well we'll certainly be looking forward to this new project that sounds wonderful And with that being said, thank you very much, Dr. Becker, for joining us and for your insights.
1: Thank you very much. It's been really wonderful speaking
0: with you. It's my pleasure. I'm your host, Aliza Arcan. This discussion of blackness in Morocco, Gnawa identity through music and visual culture, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.